0: This is episode four of Dialogue Heritage, a podcast series exploring the history of dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Each episode, we discuss a five-year period in the journal's history, from the founding in 1966 until today. This week, we're discussing 1980 to 1985. I'm Taylor Petrie, the editor of Dialogue, and with me is Andy Pitcher-Davis, the art editor of Dialogue.
1: Hi, Taylor. Thanks for doing this with me, this venture. I've been thinking about this, and I've decided... That this should be dialogue heritage from left to right, meaning you have a very organized left brain approach towards the journal and scholarship, and I always approach it from the right side of my brain in terms of the culture and the art. But I think that makes for a good pairing. How does that sound to
0: you? I've loved learning so much from you because I didn't know anything about the history of the art and the poetry and who the artists were and all of the materials that were in dialogue that I just didn't pay attention to because I just read the articles. And so I think we've made a great pair in tackling these issues from our two different perspectives.
1: I think this is going to be a model of how we tackle issues within our culture at large from the left and the right. So I'm excited about the, to, the experience.
0: I love it. So I mentioned that we're discussing 1980 to 1985, which covers two different editors, the end of the Mary Bradford period and the beginning of the Linda and Jackson Newell period. Bradford and her associate editor, Lester Bush, ran the journal for six years out of Washington, DC and part-time out of Australia as well with some rocky moments, but they handed over a journal that was much stronger than what they'd received. I learned a ton from this period that I had no idea about. Uh, what was your experience going over these issues?
1: You know, of course, there's there's more content than we'll ever even get to. But one of the things that I've really appreciated as we launch into this is the way uh, Mary Bradford has edited the journal and the, and the voices that she's chosen to amplify and the way that she has gr- not that she has she has fostered and grown. These small and quiet voices into something that explains a narrative of our greater greater people, and this is of course the time period where she she hands over the reins to a new editorship, and she does it with grace and with style. I, I'm reminded of her famous last words, and she as, she as she does this, and it and it's headed towards being uh, in the care of, of the Newells, and uh, of Linda King Newell and and L Jackson Newell, and she has a, a I think she, she, an essay she wrote called Famous Last Words or Through the Correspondence File. For the past six years, I have been engaged in various dialogues, best understood by a quick trip through the editorial correspondence file, a sort of diary or dialogue of my term as editor. In that fragmentary record, I grope for a synthesis that eludes me. She goes on to explain what the journal is to her and she says, she said, I don't like to think of myself as the type of critic who pronounces something good if it makes her laugh or cry, but I can't help getting personal about the experience of taking dialogue into my home and nurturing it for six years. When I think of Claudia and the countless others who wrote for it and worked on it, sometimes against their better judgment, I feel such a combination of pain, guilt, elation, joy, regret, and fatigue. That to describe dialogue as an intellectual scholarly journal is just not good enough. And when I consider the passion and the energy that went into the founding of it and its continuance for 15 years, I can only think of another friend of mine who once cried out in frustration, I must worship in my mind. Worship is emotional, spiritual, passionate, and yes, intellectual. So is this enterprise called dialogue a journal?"
0: Mary was such a beautiful writer, and of course, as you mentioned, brings dialogue literally into her home and runs it out of her basement for years, and uh, was so devoted, and it was such an amazing leader, not only during that time, but in the continued years since. We've just been so blessed to have her in this community. Um, Thanks for sharing that, yeah.
1: Before she leaves the journal, she tackles some very difficult issues. Do you want to explain what those are?
0: Yeah, I, I thought about putting this period into kind of a broader context, and there are a couple of episodes that I think are kind of worth this explaining what's going on in the world. Uh, The RLDS church gives women the priesthood during this era. Uh, We see a kind of turn against many Mormon intellectuals happening. We see the end of the Camelot years in church history where Leonard Arrington is pushed out. Dialogue does seem to be doing better, but it's gaining some negative attention from some church leaders during this time period. There is the rise of the religious right and Reaganism, and we see a renewed rise of anti-Mormonism with the making of the movie The God Makers. We see also Spencer W. Kimball is in decline during this era and eventually dies at the end of 19 or not at the end, but in 1985. Um, And so we see some turbulence in in church leadership during this period. And uh, we're also in really what's called the second generation, what Dialogue is calling the second generation of its leaders, 15 plus years after its founding. Um, The founders weren't the ones who were in control anymore. So we see new voices, new scholars, new submissions. And we're also seeing tons of competition now from other venues, not only BYU Studies and Exponent Two and Sunstone, which had uh, come on, come uh, back to life or or were in, or renewed in the nineteen seventies, mm-hmm. but also uh, Farms, which appears during this time period as well, which gives both wider audience to a kind of broader Mormon intellectual conversation and also more places for authors to kind of grow their talents and for some divisions to sort of develop between some of these different uh, journals. And we start to see some of the people who used to contribute to dialogue don't anymore. And uh, so some some riffs and divisions. Uh, The social issues that we've discussed in previous issues uh, are really still at the forefront of a lot of what is concerning um, the readers and and writers to dialogue. Uh, But one big thing had changed because in 1978, with the revelation on the priesthood, race really kind of fades into the background. There's only one article during this five-year period from Armand Moss that's on the history of race in the priesthood. In contrast, women's issues really start to take off during this period, and we see tons of amazing scholarship out of these early 1980s. Yes. Of course, the ERA is the big thing that's kind of lurking in the background. Um, and uh, we see that the first issue in 1980, in spring 1980, really begging dialogue to take this on, while Mary Bradford had kind of been ducking it. What's uh, what's your uh, what's, what's your take on kind of this early phase when they start to finally take this on?
1: I think there's a couple of things to be said. Number one is is how the journal works, meaning often it is this call, this cry for some sort of input, as you say. The the letters to the editor, please do something on the naughty women's movement. We need more discussion of issues rather than warmed over historical PhD dissertations. Michael Southwick. Now, right below that is a note. This This is a year prior. To uh, Mary taking on finally the this issue of ERA and also of women and and the priesthood that's coming along. Note: We are planning an anniversary issue of the Pink Women's Issue in 1981. Meanwhile, see Dixie Snow Hufner's Volume 11, Number One, and a very important essay, Susan Taylor Hanson. We are also planning articles on Sonia Johnson and Johnson's controversy, directly following this note is something that I think is one of the true gems. It's the next letter to the editor. I would like to thank Dialogue for publishing Susan Taylor Hanson's well-written discussion of equal rights amendment. The ERA is an issue which is in the need of some honest, open discussion within the church. And I appreciate your willingness to present in such forthright manner a viewpoint which has thus far been ignored by the church media. Nadine R. Hansen, Cupertino, Californian. Of course, we'll hear from Nadine coming up, but I love that she is the one asking for this. Then we see Mary respond to this in in the famous ERA issue. Uh, and it was a difficult time for her. She, it was slow she was slow. Did you see the editor's note? There's a lovely editor's note at the beginning of this the issue. And this is summer of 1981. As a woman editor of dialogue, I have been pressured with various degrees of gentleness and impatience to do something about the Sonia issue. Longtime personal friends on every side, both before and after the excommunication, expressed their desire to see dialogue, take a stand. As editors of a forum forum dedicated to responsible, well-documented discussion on many sides of many issues, we didn't feel we could do this. And to be honest, as members of the church, we found it difficult because we were not in agreement among ourselves, either on aspects of the Sonia controversy, or on ERA, or on the best way to deal with them. We polled our board, and some of our readers for suggestions in a time-honored dialogue fashion. They decided that we were ready to—we were already too late to tell the story of the trial and the excommunication itself. Although many questions remain, it would be better to concentrate on the issues relating to it. And so she goes on to to chronicle what they have decided. And this is not necessarily Mary's voice. You can tell that the board helped her kind of get to this point. And it it speaks to the environment uh, around which both Mary and Sonia were operating there on the East Coast
0: it's such a fascinating moment and we really finally see the uh dialogue the journal take on this issue in 1981 this is two years after sonia johnson who was the head of mormons for era came into conflict with church authorities and was excommunicated in 1979 this was such a huge really national news issue everybody in the nation knew the word knew the name sonia johnson and uh uh, she Become a kind of symbol um, of uh, resistance to patriarchy, a resistance to the church, and the kind of bad feminist that many members in the church uh, worried about uh, would would happen to women who kind of take took on this uh, this perspective. And so everybody kind of had to have an opinion about Sonia Johnson, and she was a household name uh, uh, in, in the church during this time period. And so you finally see the church taking or the the journal taking this on.
1: One of the things that I think is really important, and there again, we're going to talk about the fact that there's a call, there's an address to an issue, a call for an issue, address to an issue, and then be follow-up. And I think it's very important that in the next uh, next several issues later, there's a note by Gene Sessions in the brief notes, and he and he addresses this, and he says this is really important. He says, as the ERA missionaries. Uh, to Utah were knocking on their first doors in the late spring of 1981, the Reagan administration announced that Rex Lee, dean of BYU's J. Reuben Clark Law School, had accepted an appointment as a U.S. solicitor general. While only the most embittered liberal might suggest that the two events had any connection, anyone who had read the polemic against the proposed amendment entitled A Lawyer's Look at the Equal Rights Amendment could not have missed the significance of it having previously served as assistant ger- attorney general in Washington and with his current service as head of BYU law school, Lee comes to this new job, the eminent qualification. He goes on to say that Lee is part of a community of Mormons that work in the Reagan administration that are very, very conservative and very funded. So in this hostile this is who mary is living among mary lives one stake over from sonia johnson maybe one stake over from rick's Lee. so as she is, seems quiet i think also a lot of that is is a diplomacy mary was in support of the era at the time her husband was a bishop so i before we say mary did not take on this issue or dialogue did not take on this issue i think it's important to understand the culture of in which the issue was brewing it was not a simple matrix it was a t- it was a a hostile environment and
0: of course uh Rexy lee is the father to senator mike lee today yes. uh and so we see some some interesting continuities there but there's a third person there's actually two other people that i think are worth m- throwing into the mix here yes one is beverly campbell Absolutely. who is the anti era spokesman for the lds spokeswoman for the lds church she was a sort of lds version of phyllis Schla- schlafly she was Schla- phyllis schlafly she was the anti-sonia johnson really and uh the two had been invited to speak on the today show but sonia johnson had refused to appear alongside her um and uh, uh, the first thing that the that dialogue does in the spring of 1981 is actually devote a, a big section of an interview with Beverly Campbell. And it's an excellent interview. I, yeah. I presume that Mary is the one, but Beverly Campbell is also in Virginia and also probably one or two stakes away from all of this. Uh, these were all neighbors, right? Yeah. And uh, so so I think the Beverly Campbell story is an important piece and in those interviews and, and letting her sort of lead off the anti ERA perspective lead off the journal in 1981 is is an interesting thing. The second person I think is in the background here is interestingly Fawn Brody. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Why? Well, she dies during this time period. She dies, I think, in in 1980 or the beginning of 1981. Mm -hmm. And so there are then a series of memorials. Sterling McMurrin gives a memorial to her in 1981. Uh, And then in a later issue that year, there's another oral history about her. And why is she important? Well, before Sonia Johnson, Fawn Brody was the most famous woman excommunicated from the church a generation before. And uh, do you know what year she was excommunicated? I think it was very close around the t- the publication of her uh Joseph Smith biography, um, No Man Knows My History. And I think it was in nineteen fifty-six or seven, something like that. Does that sound right? Actually, nineteen
1: forty-five. Nineteen forty five. Nineteen forty-five. In her in, in the interview. Sorry about that. But it's it's interesting to me because that is a long time to go without any major excommunications.
0: And so uh so The fact that there is her death and the kind of memorials that are going on around her link her, of course, to Sonia Johnson, not only uh, in in their public excommunications as women who were seen as opposing church leaders, uh, but also in the kind of. Strange timing around the 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 Fawn Brody coming back into the public consciousness around her death. So all of these things are kind of shaping what's going what's going on here. Of course, after the Beverly Campbell interview, there is a long interview with Mary Brad Mary, where Mary Bradford interviews Sonia Johnson, and um, and again, you kind of get this deep dive into her, and it's a challenging interview. Again, it challenges her and asks her to, to defend herself on a bunch of issues. Um, it's ne- uh,
1: it's nearly an interrogation. It is. It is a hostile interview. It's. It's pretty tough.
0: It is because it's a lot about her divorce, which happened Mm -hmm. right around the same time, and around her children, and whether or not she treated her children. There were all sorts of rumors that were spreading around around this. Yeah. It was a pretty a pretty tough tough one. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, one of the things that's quite interesting is, as what's happening also in this story a little bit is. Mary is asking, don't you feel like you're part of this Mormon tribe? Do you feel like you are belying your alliance with the church? And and Sonia's like, I don't know that I'm part of a clan that is so, that, that, that that was an issue. One of the things that's interesting we find in the Odyssey of Sonia Johnson, much of her time prior to moving to Sterling, Virginia, she was abroad in many different countries or in Berkeley and was able to think outside of the idea of clanism, I believe. Um, she, mm. she is, is sort of symbiotically, um, uh, evolving into feminist thought along with many other LBS women, prominent LDS women. She does it in a different way. She's interested in the civil rights and the equality of, of there more than she is in a religious setting. So, so I think that that's important because one of the things that, that I feel like Mary says is. Well, are you no longer one of us? If you're, you know, and Sonia is sort of like, I I think I've moved past that in some ways. The ward that she's in, and she talks quite a bit about her bishop in this ward, and his name is Bishop Willis. And she talks about how there was, uh, you know, this, that there was a very sexist. It was a very sexist ward that it was, that, that there was a lot of, um, even when Kimball said we can have women give prayers in church, Bishop Willis just was not going to happen, have this happen. The reason why I bring up Bishop Willis is because I served my mission 10 years later in the Sterling Park ward. This was my first, this was my first era area and I had been out maybe three weeks and I knew this ward well and I knew Bishop Willis had become the ward mission leader. And I have such a vivid memory of this ward and, and I and I very much sympathize with what Sonia's saying about the bias against feminism, about the conservatism, the the, the the and also there again, some of the ego that that she was up against in this leadership roulette in, in many ways. But Bishop Willis had one day said to us, you know, sisters, and it was it was during the Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas hearings, I remember this vividly, and he said, what I would like you guys to do is go knock on the door of Sonia Johnson and invite her back to and I had heard her name and knew of her. And I remember her house, which was very simple, and in Virginia. And I had this, intri- I was I, I was only in my mission for a couple of weeks, I had a senior companion. And I, was, I had this feeling on one end, I was like, please don't answer the door. <laughs> on the other hand, man, I'd really love to meet <laughs> Sonia Johnson. So she did not answer the door. But what I mean to say is that the men who tried Sonia in in a church court were still part of the community and and still very conservative, even when I was a missionary there 10 years later. That's how intense the East Coast was in terms of, uh, you know, fighting a battle.
0: That is an amazing story that I had no idea until this very moment. What a what a cool connection. <laughs> no, it's awesome. That's awesome. So, but but it, it raises an interesting issue because it was a kind of it, it was often framed even in this interview as a personal conflict between her and her bishop. Uh, Absolutely.
1: uh but
0: there was another interesting aspect of this which is just important to remember that, that you raised how different the church was even between now and then on women's issues. It was during this period, just a few years before when women were able to pray in sacrament meetings, you know, yeah. and that had, ha- it had happened before, but there was a period of about almost a decade or so where it wasn't allowed in the church. And she talks about how her daughter wanted to be able to pass the microphone around yeah. in testimony meeting, which is a thing that May still happen in some areas. It doesn't happen much anymore. But, but she was so, told no. That is a priesthood function, and uh, th- th- her daughter wasn't allowed to pass out programs. That was a priesthood function. I mean, the kinds of things that were being construed as the as male-only activities were way bigger than what they are today, even. And uh, and so you can see some of the frustration of just like, what are you even talking about? I can't pass out a piece of paper <laughs> to welcome well, the, ex- you know. Yeah.
1: Exactly, and and the thing that is interesting to me is the women's conference is in seventy seven. This develops fast. And seventy seven to seventy nine is a quick development. So so I don't know that that there was time for a lot of women to lend a lot of support to Sonia. But I can hmm. speak to the fact that that particular ward was and I was at the time in nineteen ninety one still that kind of rigid. So hmm. so hmm. I, her her story, while many people. Feel like she's she provokes the church. Many people feel like uh, and and she's and she asserts her she she asserts her agency, you know, absolutely through resistance instead of finding what that you, you know finding an assurance of her agency within compliance. But that resistance is met with harsh resistance, and that is mm-hmm. what is really continue, can 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 contribute
0: so this year she publishes her book From Housewife to Heretic, uh, still a kind of classic uh, first-person narrative of of uh, ex-Mormon literature. And she ends this interview with this question, or the question is put to her, do you think you have changed? Have you acquired any non-Mormon habits? <laughs> and her answer is, yes, in fact, I have. I have acquired the habit of free thought. Yeah. And that's how the interview ends. Absolutely. <laughs> She's, of course not the only feminist uh a mormon feminist there were feminists before and after her and uh the next issue as you mentioned is the anniversary the 10-year anniversary of the pink issue the 1971 pink issue that was edited by uh laurel thatcher ulrich and claudia bushman and they come back, not as guest editors of this, but an anniversary issue where women's issues are still kind of at the center of this. Uh, but people are reacting in this one to the Sonia Johnson issue and to the Sonia Johnson case. And you see some really interesting letters yeah. to the editor in this issue that I wanted to read a few of them. No Sonia's Sonia's case would seem to be an almost classic representation of apostasy. A person begins with a complaint, even a justified complaint, and lets the pursuit of it completely unbalance them. They lose their equilibrium and soon are finding fault where fault does not lie. At some point, pride runs away with reason. Mm -hmm. Some were pretty mean. There was once a gal named Sonia who felt oppressed by the men of Marmonia. said she with great zest, my rights there they've suppressed and now she's living alonia
1: and it's very it's Uh, brutal and and the message is clear you deserve this and you had it and partly what we're seeing is this first time how dare you step away from the loyalty of the fold when one mormon represents all of us as mormons and so i think there's some of that people feel betrayed in a lot of ways,
0: yeah, and, and it made the church look bad. I mean, people people get defensive about it, right? Um, well, and something
1: that's very important yeah. that you know, in the ERA issue, there's no saying that the church was not political because in the same issue, it strongly addresses President Kimball saying, "No, we will not have the M- the MX missile." The first presidency says the MX missile will not come to Utah. They are a pol- they are mm-hmm. a political entity, and 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 it's shown throughout. So it. To put the onus of all of this on one woman is not fair, given that there was an entire patriarchal system, both within her religion and within her politics, that she was being a warrior against, you know?
0: You can also see the ways that the feminist, the Mormon feminists who were not willing to go as far as Sonia were felt defensive um, on both from both sides. Right. They felt like they were weren't being considered feminist enough and they felt like they weren't being right. considered Mormon enough. And they're trying to navigate this. And Laurel's uh, uh, essay, her retrospective essay uh, on the 10 year anniversary was such it's, a beautiful reflection on a lot of these issues. And it's wonderful. Yeah. Did you have th- things that you wanted to point out about? I have a few, but, but go ahead.
1: Well, one of the things that I feel like I want to point out because both Laurel and Sonia and later Nadine Hansen, talk about the issue of. The and, and what, what happens is they, they're talking about and and this was a word that came up in conference quite a bit. Laurel is talking about the unity of women with the priesthood. And she says that um, she says in this that at, that the principle that the, the priesthood is the principle of order in the kingdom. I'd written it in 74 and 77. I saw that order in a new and frightening light. I had always believed, and here she quotes DNC 121, 41 through 42. I'd always believed in the importance of unity in the church. But I thought that true unity was achieved by persuasion, by long suffering, by gentleness and meekness, and by love unfeigned. Now I was told it was simple, a matter of following one's file leader. I don't know where this term came from. I don't like it. For me, it conjures up images of marching infantry or geese. Why should children of God waggle along in single file, each a paper cut out of the other so she talks about the qualification of the priesthood being and, and the qualification of, of 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 women being unified with the priesthood being exactly as dnc says it should be by persuasion long suffering, and gentleness and this is what sonia says when 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 mary says or what do you feel like um that that women should have the priesthood and she goes i i don't think that that is a right that is given to any one gender or another i think that there again the priesthood." And the power of God is exactly, and she quotes almost the same scripture. So I think that that's very important to kind of mention. And of course, Laurel goes into some of the history uh, that is safe enough finally to talk about 10 years later about that first issue of Dialogue.
0: Yeah, so, it, well, I, it's interesting, I think, because the Laurel versus Sonia, and they're not really in, in opposition directly, but but I think it's a, it's an important to put them into conversation with each other, shows how much these issues were actually de- being debated between women. The issue of feminism wasn't women versus men; it was often yeah. women versus women, and uh, and so we we see the ways that she kind of is reflecting back on the content of that first 1971 issue and is a little embarrassed about it and a little felt like it was maybe a little not fully as matured as Mormon feminism would become over the next decade. Um, And she talks about the issue that we had discussed in in two issues ago or two episodes ago about how Bob Reese kind of chastised her about it not going far enough right so she says how did bob reese expect us to write about polygamy or the priesthood when we couldn't even write about housework without risking a schism so it was that my first feelings of feminist outrage were directed not at the brethren but at the kindly gentlemen at dialogue who did they think they were presuming to tell us what mormon women should want The pink dialogue proclaimed the values of women's voices, yet in 1971, few Mormon women were really prepared to speak. Before we could write with any depth about tough issues, we had to do a little more experimenting with our own lives. So you see the ways that she feels like she has grown, and she literally has. She over the course of this decade, she entered into a PhD program, got a PhD yeah. with six kids. Claudia Bushman, same thing, had gotten a PhD, and both of them become professors. A lot had changed in the since uh, since 1971. Um, well, and I, I I wanted to oh go go ahead I want I have a couple lines from that essay that I just love but go 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 ahead I
1: think also and and at the end she says something really important I think that also this speaks to the fact that well first of all I wonder if they thought that that first pink issue would be a one, one-time opportunity to say it all but we're talking about a, a, a group of people who have nav- navigated their own geography of injury and they're coming together and as one moves and shifts it threatens the position of the other within this within this system of using their agency within compliance. And so while they're pushing the boundaries and, and exerting power, it is a threat to, to directly to the person next to them. And that's how unstable women were in, in terms of being able to own their voices at the time. The thing that, that I like about this as well, because this shows up among uh, uh, also Nadine, and and several others is is that uh, Laurel is reading she's like you say she's she's finished a phd program and she is studying intellectual feminism among other religions she mentions Marilyn Wierenski and that she'd been reading a book called Patriarchs and Politics and it was published in 78 and these women are reading these books by these by, by intellectual women of other religions. And they're asking the question, if they can do it, then why can't? They?
0: So she has, she has this line that I think really captures it as one that, that is a, a mem- of the many memorable lines of Laurel Thatcher Ulrich. This is one of them. Uh, a feminist is a person who believes in equality between the sexes, who recognizes discrimination against women and who is willing to work to overcome it. A Mormon feminist Believes that these principles are compatible not only with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but with the mission of the mm-hmm. Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. And there you can see where she is maybe departing from someone like Sonia Johnson, uh, uh, not explicitly, but implicitly. A Mormon feminist believes that these are compatible with the gospel and with the mission of the church. And that's where uh, she tries to really situate her, herself and the kind of Mormon feminism that she pushes forward.
1: And she it fa- well, she finds it faith, uh, faith assuring. In the end, the, interestingly enough, the meta, the story that she reaches for is Lehi's vision and the iron rod. And she talks about, you know, I've always been the letter writer. I've been the one that the protester. I have been the Leahona for so long. I have been the Leahona, and and she says, she says that Lehi's story has particular relevance for Mormon feminists. As the, as the retching struggles of the past five years have forced us to reach for eternal and enduring amid the transient and temporary, we have felt and grasped the iron rod. On the end, in, in the end she says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, to care enough about the church, to want to see it better, to cherish the past without denying the future, to love and respect the brethren while recognizing their limitations, to be willing to speak when no one is listening, all of these things require faith. Because, and this is so important, this line is so telling. Because I am not at all certain that the next decade will be any easier for Mormon women than the last, I offer these personal expressions as a kind of testimony. 10 years ago, in a small gathering in a living room in Newton, a few women began to talk to each other, struggling to produce an issue of dialogue. They not only discovered the value of the personal voice, They learned the importance of accepting responsibility for their own perceptions, risking conflict. They grew in their ability to serve, opening themselves to others. They were unexpectedly strengthened in knowledge and in faith, which is so lovely the way she.
0: Oh, what a treasure. What a treasure. So in this same issue, uh, this 10-year anniversary issue, there is one of the classic essays that really finally does get around to the sort of more mature Mormon feminism of tackling the issue of women and the priesthood. Nadine Hansen's Women in the Priesthood in the Winter 1981 issue really is the first and most comprehensive and one that lasts for a generation, uh, a major article on this topic that lays out a, uh, a, a, a kind of, thoughtful engagement with history and scripture and theology to make an argument for why women should be ordained.
1: And the thing of it is, is this essay holds together and is just as important, just as relevant now. It is logical in the way it is thought out. She, she, she points out specifically that she's looking for an egalitarian relationship between these and, and, and not, and she, and she backs it up with the proof of, uh, priest, priestesses and prophets of the Old Testament scripturally, it's there. I actually reached out to Nadine and and had the joy of asking her about this essay, and she she told me a couple of things that she went in it. And there again, I'm going to post links to all of these essays because I, as I see women after this last weekend, kind of mourning what. What many young feminists coming along thought would be an opportunity to be able to bless, bless the sacrament in their own homes during a pandemic or to bless their sick family members was absolutely addressed directly by Elder Oaks and said, no, you cannot do that in any way. And I saw lots of just, just sort of uh, a lot of the voices online saying, but, I, but this brings me so much um this is so upsetting to me and I'm so broken hearted. And these essays are still our foundation. And I spoke with, when I spoke with Nadine, I said, what compelled you to do this? And I said, I know I noticed your letter. And she said, you know, I was thinking about it. And she said, someone should write that. Someone should write the essay on women and the priesthood and egalitarian relationships between gender. And then it hit her over the head. She says, it hit me over the head. And said you should write it. At the time, he was only a couple semesters in school. He eventually mm-hmm. goes into law, and largely because of her study of the ERA, she was she was an active feminist. But she 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 as well as Laurel was re, she was reading these intellectual, rel- books by women of multiple multiple different religions. Um, she she thought if feminism in Christianity was on the rise in other areas, in other religions, why could that not happen within Mormonism? And she, but she's, what's interesting about Nadine Hansen, she is, in my mind, somewhat the synthesis in some ways. Not stylistically, but she has bridged, she's a synthesis of both. Here's Sonia, completely interested in the civil rights of women, in the civil egal- equality uh, of in the law. And here is, Laurel saying, Here's my testimony, I love this church. And what Nadine does so seamlessly and beautifully is she decides to attack, to not to, to approach both the civil rights and also the idea of the leadership within religions, being able to be more of a presence there. She had read Rexley Rexley's book against the RA, that compelled her. She had been part of the League of Women's Voters because she thought it would be safe. And she had studied the ERA, but she was not necessarily um, was not necessarily until seventy seven really compelled uh, and understood what her role and it was 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 going to be. But the ERA is what compelled her to go to law school, and she became a really interesting lawyer. So I want to speak to the. And the other thing is is, is later uh, after after you speak to the essay because I think that's really in as you speak as, as you know you do gender studies. And, and and religion, I'm interested in your perception of this and as if this is, if you saw this happening outside of Mormonism, this reach towards equality.
0: In an interesting way, the issue of women's ordination in mormonism comes a little later than many of the other uh uh, major christian traditions in the united states that there there were active women movements women's uh, ordination movements throughout the 20th century but really the the rise of second wave feminism brought many of them back and and we see in many of the mainline uh uh, protestant denominations women's ordination actually it happens in the 1970s. And as we mentioned at the top of the, the story, it's in 1981, this same year that the RLDS church decides to uh, allow for women's ordination. And so we see it kind of the pressure kind of mounting, but there's an internal issue that's happening inside the church that is really kind of um, motivated Mormon feminists okay. to finally tackle this issue, issue which had been a taboo and which remained a taboo and remains a taboo for, for a long time after this essay, of course. But that's 1978, the, the June 1978 revelation opening up uh, the priesthood to, uh, to men of African descent. And uh, it was really that that gave a lot of Mormon feminists some hope is, aha, this was a doctrine that was considered irrevocable and not could never be changed week, and, and so on and and they said if we can provide a kind of uh, precedent for uh for uh, for women also being ordained by looking at the scriptures by looking at mormon history then maybe we can get this changed for us as well and unfortunately for uh for the women who were looking forward to this it actually became right. Uh, women's ordination, which became the kind of barrier that the church set up is that that is the line that we will not cross all the other lines we will. Uh, And so uh, it it became this essay uh, as a classic. And there are a few that then happened in 1985, an issue in 1985. um, And then there's almost nothing until Kate Kelly. (laughs) Right. Right. it, it really becomes a dead issue for Mormon feminists.
1: What's really interesting is there's a really, um, it's it's kind of, I love this letter to the editor that actually is, it's actually Eloise Bell and she's, and she's basically scalding, this is in 1982, winter 82, and, and, and Eloise Bell says, you know, if Laurel Ulrich wants to propose that she is the second generation Mormon feminist, then great. But guess what? She's not the second generation or even the third or even the fourth. And 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 Eloise is wonderful, to, and she's kind to her. But she said, she said that the second generation of Mormon feminists were born in the early years of the century, and they are the the women that, among other things, got us to vote. Meaning, we have had feminists all along. One of the strong feminists hmm. I see bridging that span, as you say, we don't see a lot of action, but there are there are feminists that are uh, that are very profound and and consistent in their message still. And I would say that for sure, Lori winderstromberg Stromberg, who goes to Boston specifically to work with x Two, and now is on the board of ordained women. And then also Margaret Toscano. And so these women have been part of the fight from from this time in the early 80s. They're a little bit younger than say Laurel and Nadine, but they continue to this consistently and 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 there again, Margaret is excommunicated. Anyone who speaks out, and Nadine had told me she was worried about even saying anything because she was afraid of having court having a church court against her, that she would be also similarly excommunicated. We're really pretty amazing at at uh making sure that our women intellectuals do not find a place within our circles so while we don't see quite a bit and tell kate kelly they are there we just need to we just need to unearth them
0: yeah yeah so this is a good time to transition to linda king newell and jackson newell's editorship uh we have the first co-editor situation a couple a husband and wife couple um, this happens in 1982, and we see the the um, women's the various women's issues and, uh, and interviews that uh, um, uh, Mary Bradford had done as kind of capping off a fantastic uh, a period and a really lively period for the journal. It now moves to Salt Lake City, Utah, for the first time, and there was a lot of apprehension about that.
1: Well, and it's interesting because it is for the first time it had been in California and then to the East Coast and. And manage also, as you say, by Lester Bush being down in Australia. So this is completely a new time. And I see a couple of markers that I think are interesting. What are you, What's your take on the journal coming to Utah?
0: Well, I, I was curious about it because so many people seem to think that uh, there's a kind of uh, anti-Utah Mormon vibe among a lot of the Mormon intellectuals who weren't in Utah (laughs) that felt like the Mormon intellectuals in Utah were not really up to snuff to the kinds of things that they were dealing with outside of Utah and so they there was some concern about about them uh yeah what were you seeing and what were you thinking no
1: it's funny because there again here is my right brain approach what I saw is that the cover art got really really good (laughs) Oh. And, I, I, you know, and this is very strange, but I'm looking right now at, a, at the issue. It is summer of 1983, and it is a gorgeous intaglio hand-pulled print by Jenny Christensen, who's one of my favorite, favorite artists. And all throughout uh, are her prints that are just beautiful and still to this day hold as, as, as uh, just some of the best artwork our artists are making. She has artwork by Gary Smith there's, there is, and what the what it indicated to me is that, that, that uh, editorship now, the journal is, has a larger circle to draw on. It's in a community, a larger community positioned within a larger community of culture and of thought. And maybe some of these, as we're moving to a second generation, we're hearing new voices. Some of that is, I, I think that the journal does grow during this period. It's, it takes a second for it to find its voice. I think it is very Western, and in its approach, there's lots of Will Wolbenian and Levi Peterson that we see a lot of reflection on the American West. And so that is, and, and I think a Western Mormon view is different than what you find on either the East Coast or the West Coast. But I have to say, I certainly enjoyed the artwork as as the Newells took uh, over
0: I, I I didn't even notice. Again, thank you so much for calling our attention to that. Um, the uh, in addition to the artwork, I think we also see. I, I want to put this the right way, uh, maybe a, a greater professionalization of the journal. It's run a little bit more, not just by Mormon intellectuals, but, but by people who are in university settings and who um, and maybe have access to why there's, these are issues that are packed with content if you look through them. Uh, and they're quite amazing. Um, they have a vision about this uh, uh, journal as they take it on, that they write about in their first issue that I think is still relevant. I wanted to just kind of highlight what one of the things that they say about it. They say that they have, uh, these are the purposes of dialogue. One, it offers substantive reading for educated members of the church. Number two, it provides a forum for exploring the nature and implications of LDS church history, theology, and current practices in an environment characterized by both intellectual integrity and goodwill. It seeks to express creative thought in literary, scientific, and artistic domains for the enrichment of Mormon culture. And four, it nurtures a community of responsible and reflective Latter-day Saints who find dialogue not only an opportunity to express their own ideas, but also a chance, however unwelcome at times, to shape the culture to which they belong. And they, these are the the things that still, I think, guide the purpose of dialogue and where it fits into LDS culture. And uh, I just found it a really quite striking, clear clear statement of purpose for, uh, for what the journal is all about.
1: And let me ask you a question, because one of the things we did address in our first, very first podcast was this balance between uh, scholarship and culture. And in Mormon scholarship, at the beginning of that period in the 60s so many were literary people you know they were they taught literature or it was it was heavy on the story and the narrative and and that sort of thing and there's been a shift I think away from from that towards some of the harder si- social science within Mormon scholarship but the, the history, historians, this mysterious research. do you think that this is the period that, that this happened or does that happen a bit later?
0: That's a really interesting question. That's a really interesting question. And and I think that it's relevant here for a couple of reasons. One is that Linda King Newell herself is a historian. She's working on what becomes her famous book, mormon enigma emma hale smith that comes out in 1984 and she she's already working on it of course while she uh, at the beginning of her editorship and she's a historian she's plugged in with the historians community and many of the essays that really spark a lot of controversy i guess we could say that we'll discuss in a little bit more detail are from historians and as we said also at the outset Church history has become a controversial issue for the leaders of the church, and they are cracking down on historians. So it could be in part that there's just a lot of friction and sparks flying over church history here that uh, that maybe raises the stakes a little bit um, uh, during this era in a way that we didn't see. In the 1970s, right? Um, so the 80s, we, we really, it's really taking off.
1: Well, the cosmic soup is changing in recipes. That is for sure. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting to see how that kind of unfolds.
0: Yeah, well, I was going to just say, give two other quick biographical oh. details. Uh, as we mentioned, Linda is a historian. Uh, uh, Jackson, her husband, is uh, the Dean of Liberal Education at the University of Utah. And they also hire on and recruit Levina Fielding Anderson as an associate editor. Um, Levina becomes the editor of the journal at a later period. So we'll talk more in detail about her. But she had a lot of editorial experience that the other two editors didn't have. And fascinatingly, she had just been fired from the Enzyme <laughs> right before all of this. Um, and why was she fired? Well, in 1981, Elder Hartman Rector uh, gives a general conference address that was uh, very controversial. It actually made the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Um, it said some very negative things about homosexuality, comparing it to as, as an addiction and, and other uh, really negative things. And uh, it was one of the episodes, one of the times where the church actually forced him to edit the wow. comments in the print edition of the Enzyme. And what does Levina Fielding Anderson <laughs> do? She leaks the original text of Hartman Ooh. Rector's talk to Sunstone, who publishes the unedited version of it. Now, today you can go back and read the edited version that was printed online in the 1981 Enzyme, uh, but you can also watch the unedited video of Hartman Rector's talk today online as well. So I don't know if they haven't figured out that they, or they forgot that they edited his talk, but you can go back and see what he he said originally, but that actually got her fired from the Enzyme and then hired by Dialogue (laughs) during this time period. It's just a little funny side story that's worth mentioning. Mentioning.
1: Well, I'm excited in the next five years to see Levina's influence because her fingerprints are all over this journal, and she's such a gem and such of, of a character, and so um, so devoted to both scholarship but also to I believe the culture and the people as well. So um, it's exciting. It, it's sort of like I know I know that it's a spoiler alert that Levina comes on, but I'm still excited for that plot development.
0: <laughs> so, there are the, the one way of thinking about the Newell's tenure, at least from 1983 to 1985, are a series of conflicts with church leaders. And these are conflicts, in some cases, directly resulting from articles that were being published in dialogue, and in others, just kind of general suspicion. So, in the spring of 1983, David Berger publishes a an article detailing the second anointing, which did not go over well. Uh, the article had circulated among the 12 uh, apostles in pre-publication over the prior year uh, because David Berger had asked advice from Howard w, w. Hunter about it, and Hunter then passes it around among, uh, among the 12. Before it's even published, Boyd K. Packer is condemning the article in public. He says that some foolish members, claiming their interest in only academic or intellectual, uh, in only academic or intellectual, presume to speak or write about sacred ordinances. So. Uh, uh then we have, uh, of course, The God Makers is the kind of other background which exposes the temple rituals as well. Um, uh, this movie, this evangelical anti-Mormon movie that that was going around. And um, so there's a lot of kind of anxiety around exposing the uh, temple secrets, including those that were reserved for really the highest order, the second anointing, which almost no members even knew anything about. Um, so uh, this article was hugely controversial. And one of the figures besides Packer, who really gets interested in this is Mark E. Peterson. This is actually the last year of his life. um, And he initiates an inquisition of several dialogue authors in the spring of 1983. Um, He worked with the church correlation committee and identified authors who he found troublesome and then sent their names to their local church leaders. These leaders would then grill these uh, authors about their worthiness, their faithfulness, and their writings. Um, Lester Bush was called in, Armand Moss, Gary Bergera, Gary Bergera, Sissy Warren, David Berger that we mentioned, Peggy Fletcher Stack, uh, Scott Farling, uh, Richard Sherlock and a bunch of BYU professors, including Thomas Alexander and Marvin Hill, were all called in and were told to start writing faith-promoting stories or their church membership would be in jeopardy. Um, Linda and Jack Newell were also being investigated during this time period. And uh, so there's all of this kind of uh, pressure that's kind of focusing from the 12 directly uh, who are using then local church leaders to uh, to to bring pressure? This is all going to sound familiar because this happens Absolutely. again in the 1990s, of course, around dialogue, and so we want to see this, sort of lay the long history uh, behind all of this. Um, the effect, of course, even with the investigations, no no one was excommunicated or, or anything like that. But the investigations did have the effect of kind of polarizing dialogue, seeing it as a little bit more uh, out there kind of publication, maybe even slightly apostate, despite the fact that, again, BYU professors were often even the targets of these of these inquisitions because they were publishing the kind of history that the church leaders weren't really crazy about. Um, so. David Berger's article on the second anointing actually wins the 1983 wow. Mormon History Association's best article prize. Uh, and uh, despite the fact that the church leaders were not very happy with it, the MAJ awards it with the best article. So uh, it kind of has some uh, uh, some uh, long lasting effects uh, that way and remains one of the classic studies of it. Well,
1: no, I think that there's interesting because there again, the culture is changing just a bit more. And these stories have become legends almost you know they're 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 kind of hinted at and whispered but yeah. there's nothing on paper yet yet i i there again i'm i'm proud to be part of an organization that has more and mythology it shows that we we that we have been brave on the battlefield as well as caring to those that are in need of 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 nurturing and so so i i kind of wear those those scars as a badge of honor. I think the journal should be proud of being um, thoughtful in what it what it tackles, but also being a haven for those that need to say something. That-
0: That that last point, I think, is especially relevant because many of the things that they were getting very upset about here were not controversial among historians and are not controversial today, even among the highest ranking church leaders who will consent, who who will confess that all of these things are absolutely true. Uh, uh, So the the fact that they're kind of ahead of their time and pushing these boundaries, ones that are not controversial, you could publish on these topics today and you're not going to get excommunicated. Uh, And... so. uh, that it's just a different world and that that these articles really helped to to create. Among these issues is the spring 1985 Mm -hmm. article by D. Michael Quinn, LDS Church Authority and New Plural Marriages, 1890 to 1904. If those dates don't stick out to you immediately, Uh, It was controversial because he suggested that with first presidency approval and uh, many of the apostles and others continued to solemnize plural marriages after Mm -hmm. the manifesto in 1890, declaring the end of plural marriages. Uh, It's the first major documentation of the continuation of plural marriages during this during this time period and really sort of blew the lid off of a a secret that people simply just didn't know uh, was going on. And uh, except for, of course, the descendants of those relationships, <laughs> uh, because they were the grandkids or the kids, you know, uh, uh, who, who who many of the general authorities grew up with the kids of those relationships for in the early 1900s. You know, and,
1: and there's just this bit of see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. And, and, and in reality, our culture and our history is much more complicated than that. So, and I think that that's what dialogue does. It sees it, it hears it, it speaks it.
0: Yeah. So Quinn was at BYU at the time. And the publication of this article kind of marks the beginning of the end of his career there. Um, he had gotten into public spats in the in the previous couple of years in 83 and 84 with, pres- with uh, elders Benson and Packer. Uh, Oakes is a new apostle in 1984, and writes Quinn a letter complaining about this article. And Quinn defends himself, and write basically it accused Quinn of being deceitful with the church uh, history department in Salt Lake about getting these sources. And Quinn defends himself and provides all the receipts and say, here's what I said I was doing, and here's what I did, and here's what they said that they understood I was doing, and so on. Uh, but he gets accused of speaking evil of the Lord's anointed, at least of the, uh, by, by basically exposing that church leaders if between 1890 and 1984, were, or 1904, were publicly lying about plural marriage because they continued to practice it. Um, and so uh so they sort of work through the back channels and they get quinn's stake president to strip him of his temple recommend um is worried that he's going to get fired from byu for not having a temple recommend which of course one is required and the stake president instructs him to say if you are asked by any official at byu if you have a temple recommend you tell them yes and do not volunteer that it (laughs) is in my desk drawer and when it expires (laughs) I will renew it so that you will always have a valid temple recommend. <laughs> you
1: know, it takes. Th- that's, this is what is also kind of amazing because oftentimes we speak to this leadership roulette meaning. Like Sonia, she had a difficult bishop, but there are also very caring and compassionate leaders out there that are that are working towards helping scholarship advance. And I really want to acknowledge that 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 those may not be seen. They they yeah. may not be in the bibliography and the footnotes. But I think that they are equal parts with creating a safe space so that these things
0: So Packer again denounces this article publicly. Uh, This is, I think, the third one he's done now. Um, It was an era really of heightened tensions between church leaders and historians. Nothing Quinn said was false or contested by them. But the Camelot years were over and Packer and others were really reasserting control over the historical narrative. This leads to direct conflict oh. with then Linda King Newell, the co-editor of Dialogue, who publishes in 1984 her Mormon enigma, Emma Hale Smith, um, with along with her co-writer, uh, Valine Avery. Um, and so the Peterson Inquisitions, the Marky Peterson Inquisitions, the conflicts with D. Michael Quinn, all of these things had been kind of going on, building in the background. Um, but this book wins the MHA's 1985 Best Book Award and a number oh. of other awards from other uh, Mormon history and other uh, uh, other associations, including one from BYU, and is regarded to this day as a major classic. But uh, church leaders were not happy with this, and they actually banned Linda from speaking about oh the book in wow. LDS audiences. I did not know this part. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. So she and her husband then go meet with Elder Oaks and Maxwell to talk about this ban and express concern about how it was handled because it really damages their reputation. That now all of a sudden, you know, everyone, all these stake presidents are being told you're not allowed to let these to let these two women come and talk about their book. Um, But after 10 months, the ban is lifted because Linda makes a final appeal through her stake president um, saying that she was about to go on a local television program to discuss the upcoming Mormon History Association meeting that was going to be held in Salt Lake City. And she said she knew (laughs) that the reporters were going to ask her about being banned by the church from speaking on this topic. And so she gets them to publicly reverse the ban, at least to her, to say that there is no ban. So then when she's asked about it, she can say, they have informed me that there is no ban and so she's kind of able to save her reputation and they're able to save some face here but you see they're ban- they're banning speakers and 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 all of this stuff during this time period it, there was there was uh some fascinating tensions that were happening one of the other fights that emerges is not between or at least there is sort of as a proxy between uh the church and dialogue and that's with farms um, Jack Welch founds Farms in 1979, but it moves to BYU in 1980 when he takes on a position at the BYU Law School, and it becomes a kind of hub for defending the Book of Mormon. Some of the early dialogue contributors, like John L. Sorensen, flocked to Farms as a place where they were going to be publishing their work, and Farms really tries to position itself as the center for Book of Mormon research and studies and to kind of uh, poo-poo a lot of the research that other scholars were doing. One of their targets was a guy named George D. Smith, who writes some essays in the uh, in dialogue between 1980 and 1985 uh, that start to attract the negative attention of some of these farm scholars, including Bill Hamlin and a guy named Robert Smith. There are a lot of Smiths going on in here. in uh uh, george smith is maybe a somewhat well-known figure to uh to many um he was a freelance historian but he was really a financial wizard working in san francisco and he's the co-founder of Mm -hmm. signature books he publishes a paper on bh roberts concerning book of mormon concerning roberts doubts about book of mormon geography and um, uh, uh, the editors of Dialogue had asked Jack Welch at Farms to review the essay, and Jack Welch does review it and, um, and decide and says that he didn't think that it was up to date because Roberts had all been replaced, and even though uh, John L. Sorensen hadn't published his famous book, an Americanist setting for the Book of Mormon, that it was going to be coming out soon and it would, you know, undo all of the old research and so on. But Dialogue decides to publish George Smith's essays on on B.H. Uh, Roberts anyway, and this kind of makes its way to Neil A. Maxwell, who was a friend of Welch and others, who writes a memo saying that uh, mm. they needed to, res- wow. to quote, respond to the recent ramblings of George Smith. <laughs> and the Enzyme then publishes Sorensen's essays a couple of months later, and many saw Sorensen's essays as a, as a direct rebuke to George Smith and, and uh, to dialogue. Uh, George Smith's criticisms of Book of Mormon historicity became a favorite target for farms over these early years. They increasingly go after him personally, uh, Bill Hamblin, Daniel Peterson, Lewis Midgley, Robert Smith, and others all have essays attacking him in the Early Farms reviews, and uh, we're going to cover this a little bit more in the 1990s when these heat up even more uh, between signature books and farms and where dialogue sort of sits in relationship to these two. But it's important to kind of trace these back to uh, these early conflicts, back to what was happening on the pages of Dialogue in uh, these five in this five-year period.
1: Well, I just have one last thing. I want. Uh, I'm jumping back finally, actually, to spring of 1981. I want to make sure that I acknowledge and dialogue at the, that dialogue in the journal acknowledges what's going on right now with the COVID-19 virus, with many people who are um, who are are who are ill, many people who may lose family members during this time, and. Born with you and we grieve with you. And there's a poem in 1981 that I want to share. And I hope that it's appropriate to do this. I just I I want to send out the empathy that the journal has 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 possessed for many, many years into both our readers and to their families in in doing this. And it is written, it's by Karen Marguerite Maloney, and it's called Relinquishing. And I'll get through it. Already cold your quiet body lies. done, ravaged, done. Small protest to the sheet. Beyond your window through November skies, sycamore leaves go drifting to the street. I'm near beside the window as they fall. So yellow now, six months ago, so green. I recognize an effort to console. They do not fall for whom. They fall unseen. We do not know how softly you would die, who might have bled at any orifice? You simply lose, lose a final shallow sigh. Your cheek is chill, but dry beneath my kiss. The nurses in the hallway speaking low, await me now impatient to proceed. The yellow leaves are noiseless as they go, but fall so easily and gather speed. I pass the nurses waiting in the hall and take the nearest elevator down. I shall invoke the grace of autumn's pall. When winter fades, November's leaves turn brown. And in six months, when kindled green denies, a gold cortege could ever fill the street. I shall not fail to bless November skies. I shall be glad death chose to be. I don't know if it's perfect, but I was looking for a piece of poetry to somehow And I may keep looking, but, but, but I feel like I want to express very much my compassion for those that are suffering right now.
0: I love it. It was absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much. Let me just highlight a few, uh, final issue, final, um, articles that are worth mentioning, but that we don't have a lot of time to talk about in detail, all of, uh, what they have to say. Um, that's one thing that we haven't mentioned yet is that in the summer of, uh, or I'm sorry, that in 1985, we have the Mark Hoffman bombings. And the reason why is because his forgeries are starting to be uncovered. There's actually an interesting uh, intersection here because Dialogue publishes a essay, an article by D. Michael Quinn, who writes about the Joseph Smith Third blessing, one of the Hoffman forgeries. But he writes about it as if it were authentic. Quinn, as we mentioned, was a BYU professor at the time, and he favored the authenticity. Uh, But this attracted, this particular Joseph Smith III blessing attracts a lot of attention because it gave legitimacy to the succession Mm -hmm. claims of the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, So it was a really big deal. You get commentary on it in general conference from Gordon B. Hinckley. That's the level of seriousness that they were taking it. Uh, Of course, later it's discovered to be a forgery as a result. But we have an essay in 1982 from Michael Quinn Uh, 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 arguing in favor of its authenticity. Um, Another important essay from this time period is Hugh Nibley's Leaders to Managers, The Fatal Shift, which may be one of the essays that many uh, people who are introduced to Hugh Nibley first encounter. It starts out with, 23 years ago on the same occasion, I gave the opening prayer in which I said, we have met here today, clothed in the black robes of a false priesthood. This was his it's
1: best. It is the best. This
0: best. was his uh, uh, originally a prayer at the graduation services at BYU, and then later a uh, uh, a graduation uh, speech that he gives. It says many have asked me since whether I really said such a shocking thing, but nobody has ever asked what I meant by it. Why not? Well, some knew the answer already. As for the rest, we do not question things at BYU. But for my own relief, I welcome this mm-hmm. opportunity to explain. And then he goes on to give this really classic uh, nibbly essay. Uh, Marvin Hill's The First Vision Controversy, A Critique and Reconciliation, appears in the summer of 1982, which summarizes the various theses to defend or dismiss Joseph's, 18 Smith, uh, Joseph's 1820 theophany. Uh, relevant, of course, because we are celebrating that in this uh, particular year or this particular time. And there's also a famous article. If you people don't necessarily know his name, but he really flourished as an art, as a, a writer in the late 70s and early 80s. Anthony Hutchison writes a classic article on LDS approaches to the Holy Bible, that is uh, really remains one of the defining ones. Um, and interestingly, I found a letter to the editor from a young. James Faulkner, who is now a BYU philosophy professor, uh, responding to this particular essay on LDS scriptural interpretation. Uh, James, or Jim Faulkner, as he's uh, known to his friends, has an essay coming out in the fall 2020 issue of Dialogue on this exact same topic, showing that he has been in conversation on this for more than 40 years. And. I in, really enjoyed seeing what he, what he had to say about this topic and it's surprisingly similar to what he has to say about it today. Uh, Hutchison responds, of course, in the 1984 issue, this back and forth between, between he uh, and, and Jim Faulkner. Uh, there's also another classic essay by David Berger, the same guy that we discussed who wrote on um, Second Anointing, who, wrote on, who writes on the Adam God Doctrine. And we have a first from Blake Ostler, who is gonna become a major figure so this was really, I didn't quite appreciate how fruitful these years were going to be when I when I dove into this. I thought this was kind of going to be a boring period, but it turned out to be hugely fascinating. And I want to commend to our readers these particular issues if you want to go back and read some of these articles that we mentioned and so many that we didn't get to mention that uh, are so amazing. Um, I want to thank our listeners for your interest in Dialogue. As you know, we now offer the journal and all of its back issues for free at DialogueJournal.com, but we still survive on donations and subscriptions. If you'd like to support our present and future work, go to DialogueJournal.com slash subscribe and check out all of the great benefits that you can get.
1: Taylor, thank you. This has been such a joy. It's always,
0: I'm so glad when we get to do this. It's so fascinating. And I love getting to read these issues and I love getting to talk about them with you. So thank you so much.
1: All righty. Well, we'll see you next time. Sounds good. We are Dialogue.